now and again you wake up in the night screaming about the good fortune and what might have been had I not got the casting vote. We talk about ourselves as a soundbite generation, and so you have got to grab people's attention in the first paragraph. But I always think that you should do that as a journalist anyway, in, in any generation. I'm going to batter the British Lions organisers between now and all throughout the tour and after the tour because they are flushing down the toilet the greatest brand in rugby. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Forward Pass podcast. My name's Graham Jenkins and joining me this week to reflect on their career covering rugby union and pass on some priceless advice to the next generation of media professionals is the Sunday Times rugby correspondent, Stephen Jones. Arguably the most high-profile journalist covering the global game, he also offers a rare insight into how he does his job, shares his views on the growing influence of social media, and gives us his thoughts on the state of the game. And joining me today is Sunday Times rugby correspondent Stephen Jones, arguably the best known and surely the most widely read journalist covering the game today. Steve, thanks for joining me. <laughs> I'm going to take you on a bit of a, uh, on a, a journey, Steve. Um, can we start, perhaps, where did your rugby journey begin? Where, where did you, your love of the sport come from? Uh, love of the sport came from my dad. My dad was a sort of flanker in a local club in Newport. Um, and uh, when he retired, he went down to watch Newport rugby. Um, and uh, the sort of magic started there, really. Um, and uh, not only the magic of rugby, but the magic of club rugby and what it meant to the community, because, you know, you kind of owned the team in those years. So that, that's when it started. My dad was playing, then he'd take myself and my brother down to Rodney Parade, and, um, you know, that, that, that's where the germ first, uh, well, that's where it first germinated. Mm-hmm. And how about the, the passion for writing, and where, and where did that meet with, on your rugby journey? Very much a passion for newspapers, Graham. Uh, uh, I can remember when I was about probably nine or ten, reading um, the big rugby paper in Wales, the Western Mail, and, and realising that these people on there were, were, were kind of covering rugby. And um, it, But it, it, in fact, it wasn't um, a rugby thing in a way. It wasn't even a sports thing. I just wanted to, to, to be a to be a newspaper journalist, as simple as that. The, the sports stuff was a lucky add-on, but it was this sort of amazing world of newspapers don't forget when we're talking about a time when if you licked your fingers the, the newspaper print would come off in your hands so that is you know it's it was it was a fairly basic um addiction that i formed to newspapers mm-hmm. and so were your, were your first steps taken in the local press in in, in south wales no they weren't I, I went to oxford poly uh oxford brooks as it's now known um where i had four disastrous years on the, on the academic front uh, but um, I, I, in those years, there was nothing, no such thing as a journalism degree. So I was doing a degree I didn't believe in, all because all I wanted to do was write for a newspaper. And I knew then that, uh, and, and, and probably to a certain extent even now, that local papers uh, were a good way to get in. You, you go in and you do your training. And I must have written probably between. Like, 50 to 80 letters to every local paper you could think of. I think I wrote to one on the Isle of Skye, saying, can I be taken on, and uh, didn't get any joy whatsoever. Um, you know, but I probably wrote bad letters for a start. 
then uh, one day in the coffee galley of Oxford Poly, momentously, a friend of mine, um, I'm still very friendly with now, saying, hey, look at this, and he showed me Rugby World magazine. And in there was an advert for a, a real sort of basic journalism post. And it said things like, you know, you must be able to learn sub-editing. Uh, and it said picture filing. I mean, that's how basic it was. The salary was unbelievably basic as well. But I applied for this job on Rugby World and I, and I got it. Uh, it's as simple as that. And just to extend the story, I mean, I think most of the people who... It was to be the number two on Rugby World, the editorial assistant. It's a very, very small operation. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I think something like sort of 80 people applied, most of them had experience. And uh, it got down to the final four, then it got down to the last two. And then even then, it, I, I won it on a casting vote. So it was now and again, you wake up in the night screaming about the good fortune and what might have been, and I've not got the casting vote, but I started on Rugby World in the 1970s, and uh, and that was the first step. Mm-hmm. Even even before then, were there, were there particular bylines that you looked out for when you were reading, dive, you know, diving into these newspapers? Yeah, yes, there were. Um, uh, I, I mean, I think that um, in those days, like it, Wales was a kind of smaller community, and you really looked at the bylines like there was, a, there was a very famous writer called Bryn Thomas. He wrote under the byline J.B.G. Thomas. And uh, Bryn, who I was later lucky enough to meet and uh, very encouraging, was, um, I think he wrote something like 24 books. And he covered all the Lions tours. You know, he'd go on Lions tours where they were on these great Dakota aircraft and all that sort of thing. And there'd be a dinner a dinner sort of uh, dinner and drinks every night for which they put on their their, their dinner jackets and all that the, the, the great era of touring <laughs> JBG was one um, John Billow uh, his, his assistant was another but you know then I started trying to read other people and Peter West uh, the famous uh, cricket and rugby writer was in the Times I, was, I always liked his style uh, but I would never have dreamt of reading anybody else who wasn't writing on rugby at the time. But, you know, he was this sort of guy, but and especially these heroic old guys who went around all these tours on six-month tours to covering them. They just just gave me a kind of almost rapturous um, vision of what it could be. Journalistically, obviously, um, you, you tend to follow columnists, uh, you know, like the likes of Ian Woolridge, Hugh McIlvanny, uh, my colleague at the Sunday Times, if ever anyone wants to be a sports journalist, Hughes done compendiums on McIlvany on boxing, McIlvany on racing, McIlvany on football. Just the most muscular beauty uh, in, in, in those books. Uh, Lawrence John um, uh, used to be my golf colleague at the Sunday Times. Uh, beautiful golf writer in a different sort of style. Not all bash and crash like me, but sort of deafness and now a brilliant author. Um, um, and then, um, you know, I once even going way back, um, a guy from the National Council of Training, a journalist called Bill Ward, just say, you know, this is too flowery. Just, 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 you know, just say what you what you mean here. Say it early. Say it with clarity. And that forced me, after I saw, uh, spent time with Bill, to cut away all the fripperies. You know, you're not trying to write an essay. You're trying to write a newspaper or magazine report. 
and then um, you know more, more, more closely uh, your own colleagues, especially the, the people on the tabloid papers. So how hard they work, how hard how much they're under pressure, but how brilliantly they can convey a lot of thoughts in a very very short short number of paragraphs. And uh, so you know you everyone has their darlings, everyone has people they follow, uh, even if they follow them to be annoyed, but. Uh, for, you know, you have to find your own heroes and make sure you're listening when the heroes are speaking. So, so you're you're in camp at Rugby World, obviously probably a, a dream assignment for you. I guess you clearly moved on from there, but was that a tug to move on from there? Yeah, well, I mean, the thing is, with, I, I, you know, I'm so lucky. I've only ever had two jobs. One was editorial assistant on Rugby World. The other was rugby correspondent of the, of the, of the Sunday Times. And, you know, again, I, I was lucky. I mean, I, I, you know, once you get these jobs, you've got to work really, really got to, you know, take it to heart and work as hard as you can on them. Um, and uh, Rugby World um, was at a time when the magazine was really expanding. It, it was really old-fashioned at the time. Um, we used to do an, a, a, a monthly competition, and the prize for it was a cigarette lighter, a great sort of, you know, desktop cigarette lighter, as if anyone would ever want one of those now. And uh, the editor was David Norrie, uh, went on to become um, a well-known journalist with the News of the World, well-known in cricket and rugby, mm-hmm. still one of my very, very best friends. And, you know, we were both new to it. We were both, I think I was 20, maybe, and David was 22. And we dragged the circulation up, and we we sort of made it much more modern. Mm-hmm. Um, no, but I was only there for six years, and the good thing was, uh, Graham, that when you've got a small staff, you know, we had to do the the, the sub ed- the, the sub editing. We had to lay it out. You know, we we we, we used to sit there with letters set doing head- headlines. You learned all about law for journalism. Um, you learned what people liked and wanted and so we did every job so as a grounding it was perfect uh, at the time um, um, the Sunday Times uh, missed a year of publication due to, due to um, sort of printing disputes and when it came back they were short of um, match reporters mm-hmm. so there was a time when as a freelance when I was at Rugby World I would be sent to do match reports for the Sunday Times, and every Wednesday morning, the letter would come asking you to um, go and do this match for the Sunday Times, how many words they wanted, and I used to literally sit by on the inside of my door waiting for the post to come <laughs> uh, because I was so thrilled and overwhelmed that I get this thing from the Sunday Times saying, please cover this match for us under your byline. 40 quid a week it was as well at the time, which wasn't too bad. So mm-hmm. that was when the link to the Sunday Times came. And then um, Ian Robertson, um, still on the BBC to this day, in his 70s, and another great mate, uh, he joined the Sunday Times as rugby number one. But he didn't really, Ian didn't really take to the, 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 the writing and the deadlines, which are horrendous, as, as you well know um, from your own work. And... Um, so he went, and then I got the job. Um, in, I covered the 1983 uh, John Play Cup final between Bath and Bristol uh, for the Sunday Times, and uh, was on cloud nine mm-hmm. uh, about it. Yeah, I couldn't believe I was doing it, and uh, I'm still on cloud nine about it now, really. 
30, whatever, 30, 33 years on. It's, it's, certainly, it's a huge achievement. I'm just I'm about to ask you to try and sum up how, the, how your job has changed in that time, but I dare say that's not a short answer. Um, it's not a short answer, but it's, it, 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 you know, it's the, the principles, I think, are, all, are always the same. If you're doing um, something that is, uh, that is in a newspaper or on radio or TV or online, if it is worth it, if, it, if it's worth doing, you do it well, you do it accurately, you get to the nub of the story, you know, you, 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 you press hard in the first few paragraphs to get people's attention, um, you know, you, you try and develop a range of contacts, uh, you read up everything you can around your, your subject, and, and these things I don't think have changed. I mean, clearly, you know, the paper used to be printed on hot metal, um, and uh, you know it was it was it it smelled of printer's ink and um, and you know we we had a huge number of journalists and great panoply of of skills that they had but um, far more as we now know is online mm. and I'm not for a moment denigrating that because there's some very good stuff which appears but all the principles of what you did. I would say are exactly the same. You've got to grab people's attention these days. That that may have different. You know, it's we talk about ourselves as a soundbite generation, and so you have got to grab people's attention in the first paragraph. But I always think that you should do that as a journalist anyway, in, in any generation. And I also think that we do ourselves down because I think young people these days still like to sit down and read something and take it in and be challenged by it, disagree with it, agree with it. It doesn't have to be two paragraphs. You can actually do longer stuff. So, you know, I think print the principles are the same as they always were. Mm-hmm. Can we uh, perhaps just look at an average week for you and on a, on a day-by-day basis in terms of what you do and who you talk to and where you go sort of thing? Maybe for a, for a, for a test week for an autumn international, say, what would you be doing? That's a very good question. That, that is far more difficult to answer than, than the other one. <laughs> but... Um, I think you know when the season's really peaking. That's when it's autumn internationals or a big tour or, or, or indeed anything. Um, you know, people say, "Well, you only come out on Sundays." So, what do you do the rest of the week? Well, if you say like sun, Sunday is meant to be the day of rest, but you'd be uh, definitely, definitely be sitting there planning stuff on a Sunday for the Sunday paper after. Certainly, would be working seven days and. Um, one thing you, you, you should people probably don't realise is that papers like the Sunday Times they, they are different. That we we called editionising, so that if you live in Ireland or Scotland or Wales or England or even say you live in the north of England, you may well get a different paper. You get different. Some of it would be the same, but you get different rugby features now and again. So you know, in Ireland we might be doing a piece on. Um, you know Johnny Sexton, um, but it, but it would only be online for the other editions. Um, while we we would do a piece on George Ford, you know, it's it's just you're just trying to appeal to the people who um, who are going to buy the paper and don't say, look, we want you to read about loads of stuff you're not interested in. So that that takes heck of a lot of planning. That the the actual um, you know the the, the the business of accreditation and travel and all that takes a lot of planning. But also, you know, you've got to be very careful on a Sunday because if I say on a Monday, uh, you, sorry, you've got to 
be very careful working for, for a Sunday paper. If I say on a Monday, hey, I got this great new story, no one knows anything about it, well, there are five days for your daily competitors to come up with it themselves and scupper you. So the key for a Sunday paper is you have to work out what has still got legs on a Sunday morning because that's when we come out. And by that time, you know, um, the daily papers will have hammered away at a certain theme. They, you know, say you were going to interview Maro Itoje, well, you have to make sure through your contacts that all the dailies are not going to do him uh, to come out on a Saturday. So by the time you come to Sunday, everyone's read everything there is to know about him. So, you know, you've got to be very aware of, of, of when you're coming out, what your audience is. And the rest of the time is press conferences. Uh, you go to all the 12 uh, Aviva clubs uh, would have, Aviva Premiership clubs would have press days a week. You know, there might be contacts that um, I was going to say lunch with, but in the present straightened circumstances, <laughs> have a coffee with. But it, it, it's a blizzard, really. Um, you know, w when you start to say, uh, oh, this is a typical week, you're already putting yourself in trouble because... I don't think I've ever had two weeks the same. I really haven't. And then you come into big match day, still get nervous on uh, international days because there's so much copy to to shift in a ridiculously short length of time. Again, you have to be really quick, really accurate. You 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 use your friends who are sitting around you to to say you no, know, just double check. Was it you know was it Chris Robshaw scored that try? Um, because you don't want to look an idiot, and then cycle begins again the next day. You mm -hmm. read the paper, then it becomes, you know, wrapping paper for someone else, and you go back and create it again next week. Mm -hmm. On that, on that planning front, in terms of perhaps within the Sunday Times and the, and the Times family, how are there editors who are making sure people aren't treading on each other's toes if you, within the same sort of newspaper family? No, there aren't because. Uh, it is it is a, a, a rather an oddity, but the Times and Sunday Times are incredibly um, separate. Um, there's very very few people uh, staff in common, um, you know, and they've got slightly different philosophies. Whereas all the in terms of rugby, almost all the um, papers that now have seven day operations, but ours is different. So you might ring uh, uh, my my uh, colleague on the Times, as my, the rugby correspondent of the Times are in slot, we might speak just to get some sort of guidance on what each other is doing. Uh, and also, from the club, say you're going to interview uh, James Haskell, uh, you might need to know from the WASP press officer, look, has anyone else asked for Haskell this week? Because I don't want to appear on Sunday, and I'm the tenth person to have written a piece on him. So mm -hmm. you do it through your contacts, probably, you know, rather slyly or cunningly or whatever and that's how you do it so um the, the word gets around who's doing what i mm -hmm. think and then you react accordingly on on the subjects of, of contacts and the, you know the, the players and coaches you're speaking to has their attitude towards members of the press changed over the years has it got better got worse it, it's got it's got worse definitely um and it's one of those things that um you feel rather sorry for the next generation of, of journalists. Um, I, I know it couldn't go on as it w as it was, but on the, on the original tours, uh, in terms, of, first of all, you know, whatever contact you ever get, even if you meet a bloke in the street and chat for two minutes, you make sure that you keep every single contact for every single person you meet in your contacts book. 
absolutely vital. Uh, but in the old days when rugby was amateur or wasn't so big, it's quite charming in a way because, um, I mean, I was still as critical of players then as I am now, but there would always be, say, on a tour or wherever the, a team were playing, the press and the team would always would always um, exchange uh, where the, you know the venue where they were going that night. So you know you say, oh, well, you know, when you finish work, the team are in some there's some pub or they're in some nightclub in Auckland or London or you know Wellington, Johannesburg or whatever, and you kind of meet up. And obviously, it would be a bit grim. Cause players would come up and say, "What was that you wrote about me the other day?" But they were they were sort of forgiving, and you made friendships to last a lifetime. Gradually, that's gone less and less. The media's grown and grown, and there are huge demands on the players. But you're into this concept now of media management, and and, and that makes players unbelievably cautious of what they say. It takes away their personalities because they don't love their personalities shine through and it's made life more more boring uh, and the players now obviously everyone still has players they know well and can chat to and can ring in any team but in general the whole thing is media managed you have to you know have 10 minutes with a player then you get shipped out and someone else comes in and uh, we're missing all the vividness and colour and characters that we used to have in the old days no question do you think there's a way back for, for the sport on that front? Is, what, what would it there's need? There's got to be a way back. Um, I think that probably the press have to be a little less um, confrontational, a little less... Um, there's a real feeding frenzy now on anything that looks vaguely out of line, out of order. You know, poor old Danny Cipriani, uh, by the time we've come to the end of his um, uh, driving uh, ban... Um, uh, story. Mm-hmm. It was almost like he'd robbed a bank and murdered ten people. You know, I mean, he'd done what loads of people do. One night he had too much to drink, and he was silly enough to drive. But you know, I think the media. We really there is a feeding frenzy on certain people. I think if we back off a bit, then it is up to the players and the media managers and the unions and the clubs to say, look, rugby people are not dullards. They've got a story to tell. They're, most of them are clever. And, and kind and uh, and vivid, and let's bring all that back and let people talk to the media uh, freely. I'm not saying irresponsibly, but freely, and let's get all the characters back. Mm-hmm. You've um, you, you touched on um, the impact of the of the digital age of online and stuff like that. Is there a specific way in, in terms of that's impacted on your job and how you're filing, for example, and when you have to file? No, because the, the deadlines are ridiculous anyway. I mean, the, the most you know, the most frightening, frightened I've ever seen young pl- young people. I mean, I sat down with loads of young journalists, boys, girls um, in in loads of places, and the only time they really get frightened is when they ask you what time do you have to file copy by on a on a match, or you know what the deadlines are, because you know it, it is even after all these years, it still, it still terrifies me. But um, no. Um, I think that um, we're expected to um, write for the digital edition of the Sunday Times. You know, we have we have um, a paywall, which which initially was greeted with derision by other newspapers, but now they've all found that it was the right thing to do, and people pay for extra content and pay for content. 
have to, um, I think, imagine that people reading online are possibly younger. So I don't mean you have to send them nursery rhymes, but you have to um, just, just, just imagine. You always have to know what your audience is, so they may be slightly younger on digital. Take it very seriously, as you as you would writing in the paper. Uh, grab people's attention, but then then you've got um, social media, where for the first time you're not in an ivory tower anymore. If you're brave enough to go on social media, as everyone should be in journalism, you're going to get a reasoned debate, b unreasoned debate, and c total horror, horror abuse. Um, so you have to be big enough to cop that, to, to block the uh, people who are trying to abuse you, and then you can get a really worthwhile debate. Uh, when, when you've got time, you don't sit there answering every single tw- tw- tweet that comes in, but it can then be rewarding because you get praise, blame with people who, who, who want to talk it out with you. So that, 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 that's good as well. So, you know, the older hacks, um, we've all... If you if you were to solve, you've got to accept this new era is very much in swing and take part in it. Mm-hmm. Is it something the desks encourage you to to engage with the readers and on that level? Yeah, very very much so. I mean, you know, it is difficult. You don't you don't when you read the paper and see someone's name as the, as the byline, it's, you sometimes feel detached. You might be angry or you might even want to say, "Well, I really enjoyed that piece." So we've always. Um, try to write back to everyone who wrote into us, in, 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 even if it was in longhand, etc. But yeah, I think uh, papers realise that you can get, you know, for instance, with this, with one um, push of a, of a button, you can say what's in the paper today. You know, Sunday Times today interview with Maro Tozi exclusive or big news story, and you can instantaneously meet, you know. Um, get to all your followers. So it is just, like I say, you've taken away the ivory tower mm-hmm. and it's on ground level and, you know, one of your readers can get a reply from one of the journalists and mm-hmm. that, that's that got to be encouraged. Otherwise, you're becoming a bit preachy and posy in a pulpit. But, but it sounds like you, you in, not necessarily enjoy dividing opinion, but you, you'll enjoy a debate about any issue with anyone who wants to have a sensible debate. <laughs> it, 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 the job as a correspondent is, is is to have opinions, uh, get off the fence at every single time. Um, occasionally, you might just do it to, to, to just to provoke a reaction. Again, if you get a, re- a nasty reaction, that's your fault. So opinions are absolutely um, huge for me. And, um, you know, whether they bring people up the wrong way, is 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 another matter, mm-hmm. I, uh, but you have to have a thick skin, and I've developed a thick skin, and I'm going to continue down the path, the path I've set for myself, and that's to say exactly what I think. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, is that do you feel you've, your voice has developed over time, over that time, in terms of as it softened, maybe, or how um, how, how would it change? No, I don't think so, because um, I, I mean, I, I, I don't, don't, I'm not slaughtering people week in week out I, you know very I love write, writing a piece about someone I really enjoy or love as a player or as a person but no I don't I, I wouldn't think it's often because you realise when, you, when, when you're when you older you so 
sorry, when you're younger, you're doing pieces about all oh, that's, um, you know, the rugby laws, we've got to sort these out, or, you know, we've got to sort the game out, we've got to sort the breakdown out. As you get older, you realise that rugby is such a bloody painfully difficult sport. It can be so slow-moving that, 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 that it, 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 you think that it's never going to fix the things that need to be fixed. And that does make you angry. Mm-hmm. For instance, the British, Lions, British and Irish Lions, they've been touring with a ridiculous uh, itinerary for years, 20-odd years. Um, they go the day after the English season ends, the British and Irish season ends, when they're all beaten up, they're all half-injured, they're all knackered, they've got no time to prepare, and they fly to New Zealand and they have to play the next Saturday. Now, that is still going on now, and I'm going to batter the British Lions organisers between now and all throughout the tour and after the tour because they are flushing down the toilet the greatest brand in rugby by their horrible mismanagement. And the more, longer it goes on, the more angry I feel about it. So if, I think, if you think I'm going soft, please tell me, because I don't <laughs> want to. <laughs> um, talking of the lines, I, I believe they're one of the subjects of the many books you've written. Of course, you're, you're also a, an award-winning author. Where did the first book come from, and is that a process you enjoy as well, clearly? No, I hate it. <laughs> the, the, the first book, look, everyone's got a book in them, and you should all do, 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 do one, you know. Um, but a um, long time ago, uh, in the 90s, I, um, I just felt that the rugby was changing. It suddenly taken off in a big way just before it went professional, and the demands on the players were massive. You know, you get people who are amateur players, they were doctors, so they were working all day, like whatever, 15-hour day, 16-hour day. Then they had to train in the evening, and it became bonkers, and it was obvious that rugby was um, had to change. So I wrote a book called Endless Winter about the state of the game at the time, but it was always very... Uh, it wasn't sort of loud or anything like that. It was just the way I saw things. And it won um, the Sports Book of the Year, and it was turned down by seven publishers. Only one uh, agreed to publish it. The money I got was was, was negligible. Um, but it, it won the award, and that was incredibly rewarding. Uh, that was that was lovely, and you know, I've, it's just been the, one of the best things I've best experiences I've had. Uh, the standard of the book, the win the award, has shot up massively after Endless Winter. It wouldn't be in the top 50 now I don't think but um, everyone's got a book in them and you know don't expect that you'll make £100,000 on your first one but make sure you do it however right, you know, however kind of um, unworthy you feel just write it out there write about things you've been in and done and or, or whatever and, uh, and and hack it out and polish it and see if you can get it published it's a great experience mm-hmm. I, was, I don't suppose um, uh, in, in terms of the awards are great in terms, but do you review how do you analyse your own output do, do you ever revisit pieces a few weeks later to, to, to pick up and do, do you, is that something you do routinely it, it, um, a, a little bit I mean sometimes you, you think oh that great piece I wrote a few weeks ago re, you reread it you find it wasn't great as you thought but um it's difficult, but I think 
you've always got uh, whatever you work, you've got a relationship with your with your editor. I've got one with my sports editor. He and I have been together fifteen years, Alex Butler, and um, he is a great slave driver, as I always tell him. Um, and what you need to do is uh, you hope and pray that. Uh, I, I'm better working like that. Um, he, to be fair, he always writes me a nice note if we do something really good. Um, but we're both we're both hard hard driving, and that stops you getting too um, cool and composed about everything. And um, I think that you know when I wake up on a Sunday, I think uh, usually when I wake up on Sunday, oh my God, what the hell are we going to do next week? And, oh my God, interview. Oh God, it's terrible. And, when you get all the information and you think, oh, God, I've got a blank screen, how am I going to start? If I stop worrying about that, I think I probably know my own standards have gone down. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, how do, how do you keep fresh? How do, how do you maintain each, when you're staring at a blank page each week? What, what keeps you going? Because I'm doing the only job I ever wanted to do. And uh, every week is fresh. You know, it's 30, 34 years I've been doing it, but every week is, is fresh. You'll know this from your own experiences. Um, uh, and, and the game always changes, you know. I mean, I mean, how many times have I been to, go, to cover a Gloucester game? Oh, blimey. me, I've probably been there 250 times, maybe. I, probably slightly less. But always look forward to going to Gloucester. And I can't remember. You know, people say, oh, "Blimey, you just did the World Cup, you did the Lions Tour. Must be really boring going to club rugby." No, it isn't because, you know, club v club, community with community, is what the game's all about. So. Sometimes you get tired, dog tired, bone weary, but never. And this is—I'm not just singling myself out here. All my colleagues who, who are rugby number ones on all the other papers, and so many of my colleagues in rugby writing, in um, newspapers, radio, journalism, online—they're just a driven gang, and it's just a pleasure to be part of them. Mm-hmm. I, you know, no one puts you know you put your family first after that it's the job whatever it takes Mm -hmm. now this may be a task but i'm going to ask you to try and put your finger on a a, maybe a favorite tour or a favorite world cup or a favorite game in 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 that vast experience of yours is is that possible yeah of course it's um it's quite nice you you try not to have you don't have a favorite team when you're working You, you have it in your heart i suppose but um it's always nice when the lions for all the, the the inbuilt disadvantages, actually win the series. That that's very rewarding. But I think um, uh, people probably too or too young to remember South Africa at the time of apartheid. But I was lucky enough to go there when apartheid ruled. And you go into a, a bottle shop, and there would be an entrance for the whites and entrance for non-whites. And when you see that uh, at first hand, it it really brings it home. And um, I went there in a time of apartheid, and I saw it when I was covering games when uh, Nelson Mandela was released. And, and then in 1992, uh, the Springboks came back to after a long gap to international rugby, and I covered the Springboks versus South Africa, the classic match, Ellis Park in '92, when the Rainbow Nation was still on the verge of anarchy, when the old right wingers still wanted to fly the old flags and sing the old anthems and very very much in jeopardy there the, the sport the connections rugby and the country itself and 
to be there then, it meant you had to get above the rugby. And then obviously 1995 World Cup, President Mandela dancing, wearing a Springbok number six jersey. If you remember being very emotional, dictated to the copy takers because it was just, just huge. But, you know, things like, uh, uh, I get as much joy out of a little club game when an underdog beats a big team. You know, Argentina have been joyous to cover. Um, they just come through. They're all Argentinians in the team. None of these stupid project players where you ambush someone of other nationalities to play for you. So big games, great. Smaller games, you know, equally great. And outside of um, the line scheduling issue, which is very much on your agenda, and, and perhaps these project players that you've just mentioned, is the sport in a good place? Is it in the right track? Has it come, the, come down the right path? Oh, yeah. You know, you, sometimes you've got to ignore us old winters because um, it's about ten times the size of, of what it was. There used to be eight members of the international board. Now there's a sort of 120 or whatever it is, and you see, you see things like, you know, the Spanish Rugby Cup final was attracted 35,000, you see like 40,000 go to games in Madagascar, you know, sometimes walking along the streets barefoot, um, you know, there's the rise of the game in, in, in South America, you know, you see, you see rugby uh, crossing barriers like Rwanda, and, and then you, you hear that there's an Iranian um, women's team, and you think, blimey, that's in complete defiance of everything we think of about Iran. And, you know, it does, rugby does so much. China playing now, and then rugby coming into the Olympics. It is absolutely monstrous. It, it has grown like a forest fire. And I cannot believe that any sport has ever grown so widely and so rapidly. Mm -hmm. Given uh, that, if, if, if I were to grant you a place on the, on the World Rugby Executive, is there one thing that you'd be pushing for? You can't have Australia playing 15 internationals next year. That is ridiculous. Get off the high horse. Stop killing the goose that lays the golden egg. There's a mixed metaphor for you. <laughs> and, um, and play less games. Let the game breathe. If it means that you, have, you can't afford 20 coaches, well, well, employ just 10 coaches and save the money. The international rugby is, is strangling itself by having too many games. Mm -hmm. And, and finally, just to, to wrap things up, Steve, maybe uh, some words of advice for those who one day would hope to hold a position like yours? First of all, stay really close to the media, what it is at the moment. And, you know, definitely be on, definitely be on Twitter. Definitely send out blogs at a regular basis. Uh, even if only five people read them at first, send them out and react to people's reactions. Do not make them too long. Almost all the blogs I am sent by people to say, hey, will you have a look at this and tell me what you think, are too long. Uh, why, why not restrict yourself to 750 words or something like that? I'm not saying all journalists, but 750 words and try and have the discipline to get all your thoughts in there. Start well. Don't, don't start at the end, not the beginning. If you're doing a piece that says, um, is, uh, is um, uh, Dylan Hartley the man to, co to Captain England, you conclude at the very start. You say Dylan Arley is the very man. Then justify yourself. You don't. You don't say, well, is he or he isn't he. And then at the end, you say, and my conclusion is because everyone would have gone to sleep by then. Go into W. H. Smith and see the huge range of magazines and productions that there are. Stay up with local national radio, uh, local national TV, local national newspapers. 
get in touch with people, um, anyone you can think of. Don't be afraid to write to the editor of the big papers and uh, stay in touch with all media and also realize that if you're dedicated enough, the dream can be fulfilled, definitely. Brilliant, Steve. So, much, so many gems in there. I really appreciate that. And I'm sure everyone else will as well. Thank you very much.